so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week, of course, is Brent Leatherwood. Welcome back from Thanksgiving. Hey. Yes. Well, no, no. This is two weeks after. No, you can't do oh, that. Oh, shoot. That's we're, right. We've got an episode right. okay, in between. Because okay, okay. you're going to think he took a yeah. two-week. This is coming you're next gonna week. you're going to say hi, and then I'm going to say surprise. Because <laughs> you're going to say, That's right. ELC president takes three-week break for Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's How dare right. he? That's right. Okay. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week, of course, is Brent Leatherwood. Hello, Lindsay. You probably We're back could in tell. Action. Yes, we are, and you could probably tell there was like a an extra in my voice. I didn't say Brent Leatherwood. I said Brent Leatherwood because we have a special guest with whom we are going to talk this entire podcast, and that is my former boss, Dan Darling. Well, hello. It's good. Yeah. Good to be back in. The old stomping grounds here. This is, the, this used to be your abode, this studio where you yeah. would record your podcast. Where all the magic happened. Where all the magic happened. So now, so Lindsay, you're in the studio, and depending on how you answer this, it may be two former bosses. Like which which is the best boss that you've ever? Two former bosses. I've already <laughs> given you many chances to give me the boot, <laughs> especially on this podcast. Who is your uh, favorite um, boss? Both yeah, of you. There you go. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good answer. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Political answer. Yep. Both of you were my favorite boss. Well, that's a wonderful answer. Thank you so much. But I know that Dan, he has a special place in your heart. He has a special place in in my heart. And I'm just excited that he's here and able to record this with us so we can have just a little bit of a conversation. And when I when I think of Dan Darling, I actually think of like he embodies Mr. Conservative. And I say that purposely. Is be- that because he wears sweater vests? No. Okay. Although that that does that does contribute that, to it. Yes, that, that does remind you of his conservative roots. No, but I I apply the definition that Yuval Levin uh, gives to conservatism, which is it, it starts from a place of gratitude, and I feel like that's actually where you always start from, Dan. To me, you are always coming from an, a place of appreciation uh, in, in just your analysis of things, in your your worldview. And I think that's why you occupy a special place in my heart. So I'm, I'm glad you're here. And uh, as, as Lindsay said, like you're here back in your old stomping grounds. How does it feel to be back in Nashville for this week? Well, it feels great. I mean, we lived in Nashville for nine years, so it was, it's such a special place for us, for our, our family. But even being back at ERLC, ERLC was a special place too, you know, having served here for a long time and just having a, a great appreciation for what ERLC has done and is doing, you know, on behalf of Southern Baptists and uh, evangelicals around the, around the country. What? So you, how long were you here? So I was here about seven and a half years. Seven and a half years. What was like your favorite either 
thing that that we did or initiative that you worked on, book that you wrote? Like what was <laughs> what was the favorite kind of tangible item that you helped or experienced that you helped to create while you were here? Apart Beyond from working hiring from me. Lindsay. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, apart from hiring Lindsay. Yes. Your, your legacy lives on through <laughs> Lindsay. High Thank you for bestowing tenure. that upon yes. us. Man, that's a hard question because we did, you know, we did so many good things, I, I feel like. Uh, we hosted a lot of really good events where we were able to bring pastors in and help equip and talk about really important issues. I think of our work on behalf of Southern Baptists in uh, Washington, D.C. and in state capitals. You know, it's a, it's a real privilege to represent Southern Baptists around the country, people who uh, are giving to the church through their cooperative program and then obviously uh, giving to us to represent them. You know, most small churches, most medium churches, you know, obviously couldn't afford had to have someone in D.C. to represent them or in their state capital. But because we all partner together as churches, we can we can do that. And, and I think a lot of the conversations around the country, you know, traveling around the country— uh, with uh, pastors and church leaders and, and kind of hearing what are the things on the ground that are affecting your community. So I, I think those are some of the really fun times. And then just just times with with our team. You know, we, we, we had a great team that really worked together well and was able to accomplish a lot. Uh, a small team that was able to do a lot of things in, in a really great way. And during some really, you know, tumultuous and, you know, polarizing times in the country. So great times here really, really was. Relaunching Light Magazine, I have yes. to mention, under you, which was great. We, we put out twice a year. I love doing that. And uh, still going out, which is great. And um, I think putting that thing together and, and really seeing all the different contributors, and it's cool to create things, you know, to create products, to create uh, resources for for pastors and church leaders. And I think really what was re- what is rewarding is to, to hear from a pastor in a particular church or a a student pastor or even a parent saying, you know, I had a question about this issue. I listened to this podcast or I read this article and it really helped me think through that. You got to understand that like most Christians are living their lives really a busy way. They're not swimming in all this stuff like we are. And so to have someone come along and, and explain it in a way that is helpful and biblical is good. Well, as an aside, since we're on Light Magazine, Lindsay is carrying that standard forward yes. uh, really well. And this newest issue that will be coming out uh, later in December, it's got just a whole great collection of voices that are writing uh, on a bunch of different issues related to the end of Roe v. Wade. So a little bit of a preview for our audience, and and we're grateful that Lindsay is continuing to steward that project forward. So, Yeah, and that'll drop in December, so toward the end of December, and it will be online as well. So we have you to thank that we're able to still produce that. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I know it was something that previous President Russell Moore really wanted to do. You know, it was something like, hey, let's let's resurrect this magazine. And uh, it's really been fun. Yeah. Fun to see it. Well, so you're obviously no longer with us here at the ERLC, but you're at another great Baptist institution. Mm-hmm. So tell listeners about where you are and what you're doing there. So I'm... Uh, the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of our six seminaries. This seminary in Fort Worth has a long and distinguished history, you know, uh, founded by B.H. Carroll in the early 20th century and uh, has produced just amazing leaders, you know, in Southern Baptist history and continuing to train up pastors and leaders around the country. Uh, the Land Center, it's really great how the Lord works. I mean, the Land Center is named after Richard Land, who was a ERLC president for 25 years, uh, served in such a distinguished way, and was a real voice for Southern Baptists and Evangelicals for a long time. And uh, this center, 
was created in his to kind of carry on some of that legacy. And really, we have a real threefold purpose. We really want to train the next generation to engage the culture, whether that's public service, whether that's as a pastor, whether that's um, some other calling, really how to have a good worldview and how to go into the world and, and, and make a difference that way. We also want to host conversations about some important issues and, you know, to equip pastors and church leaders how to think through all of these things and really do, do the kind of thing that you can do in an academic environment, but also train pastors as they go into their churches. So it's a real honor to both serve at ERC and now be at the Land Center. It's kind of an extension what what I was doing here. And you're also teaching. I am teaching. Yeah, I'm teaching in the college, uh, Texas Baptist College. So we have a faith and culture concentration. So if there are young people out there who really um, feel a call to public service, a call to just kind of understand the issues and how to engage the world, uh, you can go to Texas Baptist College for your undergrad and do the faith and culture concentration. And uh, so I'm teaching on human dignity. I'm teaching on religion and public policy, ethics, the church in the digital age, and um, the church and the culture. Like, how, how should the church be positioned? And so really at the forefront of all those conversations. So if you're a high school student out there or you're a parent of high school students and you're thinking about maybe taking some trips to a campus this coming spring. Yes, please do. Definitely put Fort Worth on your list and maybe your son or daughter can learn under Dan Darling. Mm. That's life-changing. Wow, that's actually impressive. Well, it's 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 really a great honor to to teach these students. And one of the things I'm I'm telling my own kids, but telling other kids is that whatever you do, whatever your calling is, whether you're going to be in ministry, vocational ministry, or your calling is in any one of a number of really good fields, as a Christian, really have a, having a comprehensive worldview and and how to answer these questions that are being asked of us. You know, what does it mean to be human? You know, how should I steward my citizenship as a Christian in the 21st century? All of those questions. Whatever you end up doing, you're going to need to know what you believe and why you believe it, wherever God calls you to work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're directing the Land Center. You are teaching a few classes. You are also an accomplished author. I feel like you're always noodling on or sketching out a new book. So you, what is the what is the current project? What's the one that you've most recently released and what's the next project for you? Well, I just released a children's book uh, with a friend of mine, Brianna Stensrud, who's a pro-life activist and has done some a lot of work here with us at ERLC. It's really about human dignity, but you know, for little kids and really uh, weaving the gospel through there. Um, and then I have a book coming out in May on Christian unity. So, you know, we live in very divisive times, and one of the things that's really distressing is just to see Christians who agree on almost everything, but not speaking to each other, not working together because of disagreements over important things, but tertiary, you know, smaller issues, and really digging into what does it mean for us to love our brothers and sisters? What are the things that are worth fighting for? There, there are things worth fighting for. What are the things not worth fighting for, and, and how should we— uh, how should we do that? You know, I'm, I'm motivated by um, Francis Schaeffer, famous apologist. One of his most important books was called The Mark of a Christian. And, um, you know, here's a guy who was answering all the questions of the age. He was unafraid and unflinching when it came to all these important issues of Christian orthodoxy, cultural issues. But then his he was really burdened by the fact that Christians were not demonstrating love for each other. And his his whole thing is that you know, the world has the right, has been given the right by God to judge Christians by the way they love each other. That's our greatest apologetic. And so hopefully it'll be helpful. I know pastors have been trying to lead through very divisive times. Hopefully it'll be a helpful resource to help Christians and, and leaders think through 
what does it mean to be unified, you know, uh, to pursue real, genuine, biblical Christian unity. Well, it's so needed, and you are a terrific writer, and I'm not just saying that because you're here on the podcast. You really are a great, clear, thoughtful writer, and you write really fast, too, which is a bonus. Uh, but <laughs> coming from an editor, she really editor, appreciates yes, that. <laughs> you always get your articles done well, and there's not a lot of editing that's required. But the topic of Christian unity, of course, is so apropos to this season in particular because we're about to enter into another tumultuous election mm. season. and um, Which is weird to say, given that we just concluded one, yeah, but right. w- the reality is we're, we're already in the next one. Right. And, you know, with uh, Trump, who has been so divisive, declaring that he's running, and social media, the way Christians behave toward one another is just uh, utterly ridiculous and abhorrent. So how would you counsel us? What any words of wisdom that you have as we approach just another potentially divisive season? I think we have to be engaged. So I think the impulse to be disengaged from the conversations that are happening, from shaping the—we have the privilege of of shaping the government that rules over us, which is something a lot of people around the world don't share. So every time I get really frustrated with an election season, which I do, you know, the, the mailers, the signs, the robocalls, the tweets, the divisiveness— I remind myself that, you know, people in North Korea, people in in China, in Saudi Arabia are not complaining about partisanship, you know. Uh, they wish they had this privilege. So it is a privilege. But I think, secondly, we, we just have to remember as God's people, um, it's not just important to speak out on issues, but the way we speak matters, the way we conduct ourselves. I think sometimes Christians think that, you know, as long as you're, as long as you believe the right things, it doesn't matter how you say it. But really— the scriptures are really pretty clear on the way we speak. I think of 1 Peter 3.15, which says, you know, have an answer for every person for the hope that lies within you. So speak to the questions of the age, you know, have an answer for the questions. And people are asking questions. What does it mean to be human? Why am I here? So we, the, the Bible has answers. The gospel has answers for that. But then he also says, do it with gentleness and kindness. So Peter, who, you know, obviously we know Peter was no shrinking violet, right? He's willing to pull out his sword and cut off a guy's ear. He was jailed for preaching. He was martyred for his faith. Peter's saying, you can balance courage and civility. You can hold those two things together. Uh, The Apostle Paul, all throughout his letters, talks about those virtues, you know, the fruits of the Spirit. But even when he's talking about Christian leaders, you know, what should mark a Christian leader? Yes, they should be able to teach. And yes, they should have a, you know, the the, the moral questions about their, their moral life. But a lot of issues of how we treat people. And so if Peter and Paul, who were martyred for their faith— can say that I think we can too. You know, me, my my post on Facebook is not more courageous than the apostles, right? And so I think keeping that in mind, and I think how do we love people who disagree with us? You know, Christians who are going to disagree. There are going to be Christians in your church, Christians online, who are going to have a different take on some things. And can you love them in spite of that? I think we tend to reduce people down to that one wrong opinion and think that's the only thing about them. But you know, they're they're whole people and. And so modeling what it looks like to disagree, even in public sometimes, but to do it in a way that doesn't denigrate the person we're, we're speaking with. Um, Christian unity matters. I think sometimes people think, oh, that'd be nice if we can get along, but let's go on to the more important things. But really, it matters for the sake of the gospel. It matters for the sake of our witness. You know, I, I wonder if, if people are looking on us— in our public conversations, are they saying, man, those people, they really love each other the way they interact with each other online or in person. So I think in your churches, 
and in your small groups, your communities, your families, you have to make a conscious, intentional commitment to say, I'm not going to let this election and my heated opinions destroy my friendships. Like, I'm going to hang on to my friends. I think in the last few years, you have had to be intentional to say, I'm, I'm hanging on to this friendship. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to let this disagreement destroy this. And in fact, you may have to just tell people, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you go as a friend, you know, uh, even though we disagree on this. So I think it's really important. I was talking to a pastor in Michigan who, this was ahead of the election. And obviously Michigan, there was, there was a lot of people focusing on results in that state, whether it was the abortion uh, ballot initiative or the race for governor, or they had several contested congressional races. And this pastor was just, he was feeling just that weightiness of the moment and how it was weighing on his congregation. And as I was talking to him, you know, I was saying, hey, you know, as you're, as you're helping your people walk through the season, and then even afterwards, like, don't, don't let your speaking into them, framing these uh, issues up for them. Don't, don't let it just end because November 8th is now come and gone. Like you need to be walking with them and shepherding them for multiple seasons. But I told him, I said, look, one of the things you have to help your people understand is they should never feel completely at home and completely Mm -hmm. comfortable in one political party or the other. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're signaling your agreement with that, but like, why why do you think that? I mean, it resonated with that pastor. Like, yeah, you know, I do need to help them with that. Uh, but like, why does that? Why does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in this, you know, representative Republican in which we live, you know, if you want to be involved and make your voice heard with your voice and your vote, you have to make decisions, right? You have to make voting decisions. And so, I actually think it's okay for Christians to be part of political parties. Mm-hmm. These are institutions. I have a friend who says we shouldn't see political parties as a home, but as a mission field. So if you go and say, well, look, my, my values line up with this party or this party, that's great. Be part of it. You know, if you, if you feel like calling to run for office, you, you have to go through the party system. I think that's perfectly well and good. I think we have to just remember that as sojourners and strangers, as Peter calls us, we should never be at home in any earthly movement. There should always be some dissonance between our movement and the kingdom of God. Some always discomfort. And that's discomfort is good. So let's say you find yourself as a Republican or you find yourself as a Democrat. You you should always feel some disconnect between your party and the kingdom of God. There should always be some things incomplete. If there's not, you might be being formed by your party instead of by scripture. That's not to say things are asymmetrical. There are certain values that are really important that I think a Christian has to think through, like the sanctity of life, religious liberty and marriage and those things. But And I think if you do that, if you keep that dissonance, and understand that discomfort, it allows you to be part of these institutions and shape them and form them in ways that are closer to the kingdom of God, while understanding that, you know, Christ has not returned yet. I actually think a good eschatology helps shape your politics because you recognize that I can do some good as long as I'm here on this earth, but we're never going to create the utopia that we want until Christ returns. And so it tempers your politics. It tempers your expectations. Um, it allows you to work on behalf of human flourishing in a way that is redemptive, but you understand that, you know, ultimately you're waiting for Christ to return. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, the longing that people have for things to be made right is an innate longing, whether you're a Christian or not. I mean, this is why people get involved in politics, right? They don't know it, but they're, they are acknowledging what the Bible says. That the world was once good and something happened that corrupted it and we're trying to make it better. Mm. And um, as Christians, because of we know Christ returns, because of our eschatology, we can do these things without getting burned out. You know, I think people get involved in politics and activism and get 
it's like this hamster wheel. They get burned out, you know, or, or sort of, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's exhausting to constantly have to be on the right side of things. I constantly feel like you have to speak out. If, you know, if you're not saying something, silence is violence and all that kind of thing. But if you have a Christian view of things, you can be involved in a way that's redemptive without losing your soul. While realizing that none of us are the Savior. You right. know, we cannot do it all. Mm-hmm. We can lay down that Savior complex and just reminds me of the verse, fear of man lays a snare, but those who mm. trust in the Lord are kept safe. So we can do a, so lot, a lot of damage in while fearing man and being controlled by that. So while you're traveling around and you travel around a lot and speak in different places, as you are encountering different Baptist institutions and mm-hmm. speaking to different Southern Baptists, how do you feel about the state of the SBC? What are you encouraged by? What encouragement would you offer? So I'm encouraged. Maybe I, I get accused of being too optimistic about things, but I'm just going to wear that. Well, you're glass half full kind of guy. I am a glass half full guy. But look, there are issues in the SBC. If all you ever knew about the SBC was headlines or or kind of following social media, you'd think, gosh, everything's a mess. Everything's terrible. Everyone's divided. And there clearly are issues. There there are institutional reforms. There's renewal that needs to be made in, in our some of our key institutions and is being made. But on the ground, man, when I'm in churches, I see Southern Baptist churches doing amazing work, reaching their communities with the gospel. Churches that are packed and filling, you know, whether they're legacy churches that have been around for a long time that God is doing great work through in communities or church plants all around the country. I mean, it's exciting. And so I'm always, there's always to me a disconnect between the sort of constant hand-wringing online and like I'm in these churches and I'm like, you know, they're telling me the SBC is declining, but uh, someone needs to tell these people that they're declining because they're, you know, these churches are doing well. I think our institutions, you know, I think this is a tough era because there's a lot of distrust of institutions around the country because a lot of our institutions have failed us. And so there's just a built-in sort of distrust of leaders and institutions. And there's been scandal. We have to acknowledge that. There, you know, as my friend Trevin Wax has said, you know, there about the evangelical church, that there is rot in some places that has to be repaired, but the structure is sound and we're built on Christian orthodoxy. And I think if we this is where we need every generation of the church since Pentecost has had both great fruit and great signs of growth. And, and you could see what, what God is doing and areas of renewal. I mean, the first century church in Corinth, I mean, Paul is lecturing them, rebuking them about getting drunk at the Lord's table, which is a scandal and about sexual scandal. But then he's also commending churches for the good they're doing. Read John's letters to churches in Revelation. I mean, he only commends like one or two of them. And this is the first century. (laughs) So I'm not papering over problems and scandals. And I think there is a problem of scandal. I think there is issues that we have to be dealt with. And I'm glad that our leaders, our SBC leaders are taking them head on. I mean, I think the issue of this sexual abuse scandal, we have a commitment that is driven by the messengers. The people have asked us and asked leaders to take this seriously. And I think we are. But I'm also optimistic. I think the one thing we have to guard against is cynicism. You know, there's a difference between being prophetic and being cynical. I think we need prophets to say, hey, there's problems here that need to be, every generation needs prophets. But cynics, like prophets are dealing in reality. Cynics are dealing, I think, in just a constant state of negativity and can't see any good. And I think if we're not careful, we'll convince ourselves that God is not at work today through his church, through his bride. You know, that God worked in other eras, you know, when Billy Graham was here through previous awakenings, but God is at work today. He's alive 
today through his spirit, through his people. Jesus is saving people today. You know, Jesus still saves. And so I, I think we have to avoid cynicism. We don't want to be naive about what's going on. We want to address scandal. We need reform. But let's not miss what, what God is doing. And I think God is doing a great work through the SBC. I still believe in, in our fellowship of churches, sending up missionaries, planning churches, doing disaster relief, educating students, speaking on behalf of Southern Baptists in the public square. So I feel good about it. So uh, since you are glasses half full kind of guy, I mean, I think we should, you know, just ask the obvious uh, because we care about you as a Christian brother and we care about the Baptist institution that you work at. You, you moved to Southwestern. And obviously, there's been some transition there, some unexpected transition. And I think you could uh, descend into a place where, you know, uh, things aren't well. But my sense is, in talking to you before we came here, is that uh, you you are actually optimistic about the future of Southwestern and everything that, that's going on. So t- just tell us and our audience, you know, about you, about the health of the institution, the the road ahead, what you see, and and yeah, give us some insight there. I mean, Southwestern has a great legacy going back a hundred years, training up men and women for the gospel with a real evangelistic impulse. Some of the great Southern Baptist leaders have come from Southwestern. You could start naming people. That spirit that B.H. Carroll had when he started the institution, I think is still alive there. And and look, Southwestern's gone through some difficult times in the last several years. It's, it's, it's no secret. You can read the headlines or read the, those articles and, and, and things. But I think God still has a really good plan for Southwestern going forward, that I'm really encouraged by what I'm saying about the faculty teaching the next generation of pastors and church leaders about our own leadership with uh, interim leadership with David Dockery, who's just a great leader and has years in higher ed. And it's one of those, as um, Pastor Mark Sayers, he calls them non-anxious leaders. He's a non, he's just a really good leader. And, you know, I think one of the things our generation really needs to have a passion for is to renew institutions, to go into legacy institutions, to build upon the history and to renew them and refresh them for, for today. And we need Southwestern in that part of the country to raise up men and women to go take the gospel to the nations. I mean, I'm grateful for all of our seminaries. And I think that's one of the really cool things about being Southern Baptist is we have our six seminaries that are, you know, we make it more affordable for students to come. And so if you're thinking about getting a master's divinity, getting prepared for ministry or college, your undergrad, come to Southwestern, come to Texas Baptist College. We'd love to have you. It's a beautiful campus. Of course, it's in, in the Republic of Texas, which is always great. So if the world caves in, but you live in Texas, you're going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say probably the biggest challenge of you moving was leaving the homeland of Tennessee for our, our first colony uh, in, in Texas. <laughs> I was waiting for that. Uh, yeah. that You weren't going to get through this. My wife is from it. Fort Worth, you know? Yeah. So, so when we were, when we were first dating, you know, we both lived in Illinois and she would talk all about Texas. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm from Illinois. I like my state too. You know, everyone, everyone likes your state, whatever. She's like, no, you don't get it. It's a real thing. And she, I think it was like the first or second thing she told me on our first date was, you know, the Texas flag can fly the same height as the American flag. It's part of the sort of agreement to come into the union. So after 20 years, I, I sort of get it. That's hilarious. I get the Texas thing. The flags thing. are giant in Texas. They yeah. are giant. They're Everything's really, bigger in Texas. Yes, they're very so. proud of that. Dan, just to underscore everything you said, I, I think uh, there's clear evidence that the Lord is in, you know, just this the situation uh, at Southwestern because of the very person you mentioned that's leading the institution now, Dr. Dockery. David Dockery 
if there's anybody that's going to help just guide Southwestern Ford and and leave it in a better place, it's going to be uh, David Dockery, who knows how to lead an institution and build an institution. And I think also you, you guiding the Land Center, you're going to be a part of uh, building this next chapter uh, for Southwestern. And I agree wholeheartedly with you. We need a healthy Southwestern. The the SBC is a better SBC when Southwestern Seminary is is running at full capacity. And so I'm, I'm grateful that uh, God has called Dr. Dockery there, that he's called you there, and so many other of our brothers and sisters uh, that, are, that are serving at that institution right now. So true, and a good, good word and encouragement. So as we wrap up, I want to ask two fun questions. Brent, you'll be included in one of them. Uh, the first is, you are a voracious reader mm-hmm. slash audiobook listener, uh, because you can't say that you read an audiobook, listen to an audiobook. Well, Debatable, right? Uh, any recommended books for listeners? Well, I mentioned one to read. It's a book by Mar- Pastor Mark Sayers. Mm-hmm. He's an Australian pastor. It really has great insights on the church and the culture. And I think because he's at a remove, he's in Australia and he's not in our context. Sometimes it's he's got a different insight that's helpful. He has a book called A Non-Anxious Presence, and he's talking about how we're in a time of great disruption, and, you know, he's likened it to, like, when the printing press was invented or, you know, certain, the Industrial Revolution, certain times of disruption, and he talks about what it looks like to lead as a Christian leader in those times. Really, really good. So, a few of the audiobooks that I've enjoyed over the last year or so, uh, I listened to Clarence Thomas's autobiography, which is read by him, fantastic, really get a glimpse of his life and growing up years and really an amazing American story. I also really enjoyed, okay, I'm going to give you two one-volume biographies. One is by Andrew Roberts of um, Winston Churchill, phenomenal. Another one-volume biography of Reagan by Bob Spitz. And then um, I also listened to some fiction too, so... I really enjoyed a novel called The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna, and I really like a lot of her work. You know, it's like historical fiction. So those are some books I've read in the last year or so. Danielle Steele's up in your list too. Not really. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's just a joke, everybody. <laughs> but I do like I like history and fiction doing audiobooks because something about narrative storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, the narrator has to be good. I can only go like, if there's a bad narrator, I may go a couple chapters, and then it's just like I, I just can't do it. Mm. So I encourage you to, to read slash listen. Okay. Reading is listening. Listening is reading. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. Listening I don't know if reading, I agree with that assessment. Yes, but. yes. Well, you gave me the perfect segue to the second question uh, with which Brent will be involved. So I'm going to give you all an opportunity. Thank you to, for including me yes, of course. Uh, in this, in this of course. podcast. We always like segment. to include the president. Um, so I'm going to give you all an opportunity to nerd out. You were just before the podcast began. You both are big presidential history fans. You mm. love to visit presidential libraries. Yes. I think I saw that Brent made a special trip during over Thanksgiving break to visit a li- presidential library. Things like this, I just do not comprehend. But what is the best one? Do y'all agree, disagree, duke it out? Rank them. I mean, I don't know, Brent, but I would say I, I visit the Reagan Library this summer when we were out in California. To me, not just because I, I think so highly Ronald Reagan, but, you know, that was a great library. I really enjoyed that. You um, can walk through Air Force One. Yeah. That's pretty, That's pretty incredible. Cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. And the the scene, uh, you know, it's there in, in those mountains uh, of— um, Simi Valley. Simi Valley. Mm-hmm. 
and it just kind of like it it invokes the 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 Reagan aura. I, I mean, yeah. he was the first president to uh, hold his inauguration ceremony on the west side of Congress. And, you know, that was, A, it accommodated a larger crowd, but then, B, it, it also was looking west towards California, towards his his home. And I, I think um, American history, we, we've kind of continually gone west. I mean, it's just, it, it just yeah. stirs up a whole lot of feelings. And so, yeah, the, the Reagan is kind of tough. I also, I would put the Lincoln Absolutely. Uh, Museum up there uh, that's in Springfield, Illinois, just because... They they it almost has like a Disney esque kind of quality to it when you walk through. It, it's more engaging than a lot of the presidential libraries and museums. But and I yes, over Thanksgiving I went to the the Truman uh, in in Independence, Missouri, which is a great library. Mm-hmm. I, I encourage people to go to presidential libraries, even if you say politically you're not aligned with that. Because one of the things I love about biographies and then studying a person is you get a snapshot of history, like their time in history and what they were going through and what they had to lead through. So, um, you know, like for instance, the George H.W. Bush Library and College Station, he had a long and distinguished full life. So you go to the library and you see the sort of panorama of America through his eyes or like the LBJ Library. You know, he, again, long and distinguished career, however you feel, agree or disagree with him politically, and you just kind of see what he went through. And So I encourage folks to do it. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. And uh, drag my family along to do it as well. So we all have kind of convinced me that Reagan one sounds fun, and that, the Lincoln that Reagan one, one is actually pretty special. Yeah, yeah. So we we I will say this: when we were at the SBC, there was like we had a short window. <laughs> this mean, is how nerdy we really are. We're like tight window. We're like, hey Brent, we got a short window, and we we speed walked through the Nixon Library, <laughs> which was next door. And I will say it was a phenomenal library. Handled Watergate really well, and. You know, again, you see time period and the era, era he led through. So, yeah, if you have, you know, look, if you're within an hour's drive of a presidential library, it's worth going you got to go. Yeah. got to yeah, do it. It is worth going to. So, Well, maybe I'll put that on my my bucket list. Yeah, that, that probably does tell you something about Dan and me. Yeah, I mean, we really had, it was a very tight window, and we both immediately thought, that's probably enough time for us to get there, go through the Nixon Library and get back. And, and, yes. You know. Do a little power walking through <laughs> the And they Nixon were kind library. of like. They were okay, guys, ushering us through. Leave. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, we had, that's right. The security guard came to us at the end. It's like he, and she's like, "Sir, you're really going to need to move along." And he's like, "I'm, I'm, I just want to appreciate Nixon." Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. Well, Dan, we're so glad that you got to join us today. That we get to be in your presence once again. <laughs> and of course, you are always welcome back to this round table in the studio to share your wisdom and your wit with us. Well, great to be back here with you guys among friends and uh, just grateful for the work uh, that is ongoing here at ERLC. So big cheerleader from where I sit. Yeah, we'll put some links up to the Land Center and some of his uh, more recent books. So that way, and uh, the best way for folks to stay in touch with you. Well, I mean, you go to my website, danieldarling.com. You can follow me on Twitter if, if you can handle my sports takes, you know, on Sundays. Or you can text him at... No. Just kidding. <laughs> well, or the newsletter. Yeah, I have a newsletter. So you go to my website, you get my newsletter. You also go to the Land Center, so thelandcenter.com. You can check that out there as well. Go. Well, we're thankful for the work you do at Southwestern and, and on behalf of uh, our Baptist churches. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. 
The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Thank you.